Do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings of the earth, Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, for he will be angry, and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know how many times we've commented, it's almost a cliche, that Jesus' life was full of the unexpected. Let's review. Mother with child out of wedlock, birth in a stable, manure in a stable. His birth announced to the unclean shepherds who most of the time couldn't even come in the temple because they were unclean while raising the sacrifices for the offerings of those who had come to the temple. A little irony there. His ministry he spent with sinners, not with the religious. And they were not just sinners, but in the estimation of that day, they were really, really bad sinners. Publicans tax collectors. They were really despised. If you've had the opportunity to watch The Chosen, you get a great example of Matthew and how despised he was as a tax collector. And prostitutes. He regularly called out the church leaders and the religious hierarchy on their hypocrisy. Whitewashed sepulchers. Does that bring... It's a little harsh criticism, right? And even stranger, when his deity is proclaimed, he would ask the disclosing party, sometimes even demons, to keep it quiet with this strange phrase, my time is not yet come. He was poor. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Hey, wait a minute, though. He gets closer to a king like we would expect on Palm Sunday. Yeah, he's riding in, and they're thronging towards him, but he's riding on a donkey. He seems to rush headlong to his death with abandon 
In fact, he prophesies it before time. He dies a criminal death alone, except for a few women, his mother, and one, one disciple. One. Not a stereotypical king. Hardly what we would expect. He doesn't even do death right. Or as we would expect. He has a borrowed tomb, and they place guards on it. Think about the irony. The Pharisees actually took the resurrection more seriously than did his own disciples. Now, they didn't believe it was actually going to happen, but they were convinced they had to stop it. There was no funeral procession. A few women and two Pharisees took his body to the tomb. The burial was rushed to take place before the Sabbath. What about a coronation for a king like this? What do you think it would be? In 1956, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated. I watched some of the footage. It's really impressive. There's troops, and there's pageantry, and there's swords, and there's scepters, and crowns, and orbs. Mm, maybe not. How do we go from meek and lowly and riding on a donkey the king we saw in Revelation. I've often struggled with that, and, and the passages I've read on this psalm, I hope to remind you today of how and why that happened. So in Revelation, he's certainly not meek. He's certainly not lowly. He's a king. He's a king. I am the Alpha and Omega. Remember those first two words, I am Yahweh, only claimed by God, the beginning and the end. In Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and before me there was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. I started praying to him this week. Dear Faithful and True, with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This one's kind of hard imagery, right? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation's and this quote from Psalm 2, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. I don't know why on the thigh, but it's on his thigh. I guess tattoos are okay there. He has this name written, King, capital K, of Kings, little K, little K and Lord, big L of lords, little l. This is the king. How did we get from there to here? How did we get from meek and lowly to riding on a white horse? Well, Psalm 2 was used during the enthronement of the coronation of Davidic kings. I'm going to take you back for a second. It was part, we believe it was part of a royal ceremony of coronation. 
In this psalm, the new king is referred to as his, the Lord's, anointed. Underline that if you have your written scriptures or virtually if you have your, your scriptures on a on tablet. Anointed, the Hebrew word Mashiach, maybe I pronounced that right, or Messiah means the one anointed with oil. That custom of anointing with oil is all throughout the Old Testament. It was a ritual act designed to elevate those who were destined for or designated for priestly. Arab, Aaron was, was anointed with oil. Royal or sometimes even prophetic roles like the prophet Elisha. This psalm is not just a coronation psalm, but it's looking forward to the Messiah. You know, in America, we don't do kings very well. Have you noticed? We don't really believe in all that stuff. And it makes it very hard for us to understand this. So I've spent some time in the UK, and they're very fond of saying the sovereign. A sovereign is something that we don't understand. We don't have lords, earls, dukes, duchess, princes, or princesses. We're very individualistic. We don't even understand this. So what's a sovereign? A sovereign possesses supreme or ultimate power. This psalm was for people with a king. A king with full authority, not a constitutional monarch. A sovereign in every sense of the word. He had near complete authority over every aspect of their lives. So let's listen to the good news of the king. I'm going to give you four R's. First of all, in this psalm, it talks about a state of rebellion. Interestingly, for a coronation, it starts out by talking about nations in rebellion against the king. It's openly acknowledged that he's being challenged. Why do the nations conspire and plot against Adonai and his anointed? There's an implication. How dare they do this? Yet, the reality is, there's rebellion. The king's rule is not unchallenged everywhere. And the nations notice they want to break off not only this Davidic king's constraints, but they want to break off the divine constraints. They want control of their destiny. Friends, this world and all of us in it are born into a state of rebellion against the king. This rebellion is ultimately futile. It does not end in victory over the king, but we are engaged in it. Then there's a response. I love this response. It's threefold. He laughs. Adonai laughs at them. Then he scoffs them. That means he makes fun of them. And then he's angry. The Lord is not threatened by this rebellion. When I say the Lord, it is Adonai. And then Adonai declares the rule of the king. And in that rule of the king, it's a response by the king, his anointed one. The one responds... And then 
There's the third R, repentance. The Lord calls on the nations to repent. Worship the Lord. Serve Him with reverent fear. And if you don't, my wrath will come. But He gives them a gracious opening to repentance. There is deep significance that He is talking to the nations which are not Israel. He's calling the nations to repentance. Don't miss that. He's calling you and me. And then finally, the result. If you repent, you take refuge. That's the result. So let's talk about the coronation. In the middle of the rebellion and the repentance is the king's coronation. I don't know if you realize this, but it's quoted by both Peter and Paul in Acts, referencing Jesus' enthronement. Peter says in his sermon in Antioch, Acts 13, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I became your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and secure blessings promised to David. Well, what were the promises to David? One quick one. There's many. Psalm 89. God says, it says, You said, I have made my covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Listen, here's the promise. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm throughout all generations. Where's the Davidic throne today? Nowhere physically. There's no throne in Jerusalem. Peter in the sermon at Pentecost, he talks about how he can confidently say that our patriarch David died and was buried, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Speaking of what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Hear this. Exalted to the right hand of God, the place of honor. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in her here. For David did not descend to heaven, but he said, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord, Adonai, said to David's Lord, Therefore sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, anointed one. Why am I making such a big idea out of his coronation? Because this is the pinnacle of God's promises. In his resurrection and finally his ascension, he was anointed by God. In this psalm, God talks about installing the king on Zion, my holy mountain. Why is that important? Because it was the seat of the Davidic line of kings. 
It was the seat of the place, that was the place where God had promised that his son would reign. And where did he, where was he raised from and where did he ascend from? Jerusalem. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. So he's installed as king. The Davidic kings were always God's representative here on earth. There is only one vicar of Christ on earth. Amen? And the Lord's king was installed as king in Jerusalem. What does this mean that you are my son, today I've become your father? Out of Romans 1, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He was anointed as the Son of God in power. You see, this was when Jesus reclaimed his divinity and he claimed that throne. Well, this next phrase is a little more troubling. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You know, the Davidic kingdom was expected to have universal dominion. The nations were going to come to Jerusalem to serve God, but they failed. They did not draw the nations to God. It was not a blessing. It was not God's representative on earth. And this ultimately resulted in their exile. But Jesus, the anointed one, is claiming the nations as his inheritance. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he is he's drawing the nations to himself. God also promised that he would restore the kingdom of David. We sang part of this passage from Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Why would a a shoot need to come up from a root and a stump? A stump is an image of a long dead tree, a tree that had been cut down, and no hope forever again bearing fruit. A tree that could never come to life. Jesus is that shoot. He is the Lion of Judah. He is also the firstborn. In Jewish culture, the firstborn had a preeminent place in the family, so much so that one can only guess what the other children felt about their somewhat meager inheritance. Jesus is given to us as a picture of the firstborn, and he's the picture of the firstborn in two ways. Colossians 1, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now he takes us all the way back to the dawn of time, the firstborn over all creation. And he reminds us that all things were created through him in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now listen to this. He is the beginning, and he is the next beginning, the firstborn. The firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is the reconciling of the nations. That is the inheritance. Look around you at your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are of all ethnicities. And those who are not with us in this room are even broader. God has called and brought from every nation to himself. The resurrection gives us a glimpse of what the world should be like. It's a taste of what a new world will be. It makes us ache for a time when no sickness or sin will ruin lives or take lives. It's a foretaste of glory. In the resurrection, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, Jesus made even death to be untrue. The resurrection revealed him as our Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the firstborn from the dead. So since then, Jesus has been asserting his dominion over this world. But there's a disconnect. From our perspective, remember the start of this sermon that it, everything about his first coming was countercultural. Everything was wrong. He announced the resurrection to women whose testimony wasn't even relevant in the court of law. What makes you think, what makes us think, that his kingdom would align any closer to the culture? It doesn't. The king's rule today has nations at rage. There is danger and turmoil. The king is not universally loved. In fact, he's almost universally hated in some quarters. He is scoffed at. His very existence is mocked. His resurrection that we proclaim today certainly is. Brothers and sisters, there's a comfort to you. Who's in control of this world? Is it the nations who reign? No. Jesus is in control no matter what they do. Jesus reigns. What should be our response? Well, if Jesus truly reigns, empires will rise and fall. Jesus reigns. Politicians win and lose. Jesus reigns. Evil seems triumphant. Jesus reigns. Revolutions 
And political change do not bring about justice or a righteous and peaceful world. They never will. Righteousness is only received through justification by faith and peace only through the reconciling power of Jesus' blood. So how should we respond? I challenge you to live as sons and daughters of God. Mark sent us out an article on church membership. And there's one thing that just stuck in my mind out of that article. When we walk through the doors, metaphorically, of the church, we step into the residence of the ambassador. We step into the embassy of our nation of our citizenship. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, he tells us in 2 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, we have a job to do. We are called to call the world to repentance, the repentance that's shown in this psalm in verses 10 through 12. The early church gave us an example They were faced with opposition and persecution, but that only made them more and more bold to preach the gospel of repentance in Jesus Christ. Christ's kingdom comes through suffering, not through political power. Second, we should take refuge in the Lord. Refuge in Him is the only path to true happiness. The happiness proclaimed in our culture today is a dead-end, empty path. There is no happiness or joy at the end of that path. The Lord is our only joy and crown. So what will His reign be like? In Psalm 24... Touches on lifting up your head's gates. The King of glory will come in. He is the Almighty. This King is strong in battle. But wait, countercultural again. What did most teams at this time do? With the defeated, they brought them to their knees and they stepped on their neck and they killed. Many of them. In fact, in Rome, you will see their captives paraded behind them with chains around their neck. They were brought back as slaves to show evidence that they defeated a rebel nation. Not this king. When he is victorious, he frees all slaves, he frees all captives. He breaks chains. He restores the loss. He forgives and he heals. Don't don't miss this point, though. He also defeats rebels who will not surrender. The end for rebels who do not submit to the king is their own ruin and destruction. I promised Jerry there'd be a little bit of fire and brimstone. Friends, today you have a choice. You can follow those who fight the King of Kings. 
That's a false lure that will take you to destruction. You will fight the battle. You will ultimately lose. Or you can join the king. Jesus is calling you to join his kingdom. He offers you a refuge. Hear his words. Come to me. All you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Friends, you may know the burden of this world. The burden of this world is not light. The yoke of sin and death is horrible. It is a heavy, heavy burden. He calls you to Him. Have you come to the King? Have you placed Him on the throne of your life? Jesus calls you to His kingdom. If you don't know Jesus today in that way, if you have never submitted to Him as the Lord of your life, He is calling you today. You may have gone to church all your life. You may have been baptized at the age of three months or 13 years. You may still not know him as your king. Listen to his call. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will commune. I will eat with that person and they with me. And the result is, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sit with my father on his throne. Come. Come to the king. He's waiting for you with open arms. The King of Kings is placing his claim on you as his inheritance. And now, friends, respond with me. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Lord and our King, we hear you calling. We yearn for the fullness of your kingdom. Thank you for your rest and your easy burden. I pray, Lord, for anyone who does not know that yoke and that burden that you call them to. I pray that they will seek you out while you may be found. Thank you for rushing headlong to your death. Thank you for coming to die and ultimately for raising yourself from the grave. It is in your name as risen Lord and as our King that we praise you today.
Hallelujah. Amen. Please stand and join us in singing. <laughs>